Welcome to the Good Money Habits podcast, where we marry financial education with tips from the experts on how to develop good money habits. Knowing what your options are around your finances is one thing, how to translate the knowledge into action for results is quite another. We're all about helping others take steps to gain financial stability, to live a better life. This podcast is brought to you by Lighthouse Capital. It is important to understand that today's episode is of general nature and doesn't take into account your personal objectives, financial situations or needs and may not be appropriate for you. Welcome back to Good Money Habits and thank you to our listeners for your ongoing support of this community-based podcast. Amongst a sea of influencers and information overwhelm, our aim is to provide access to reliable, trustworthy information and tips to change your everyday habits to gain financial security in your life. Now, I am buzzing this morning. I am really excited about today's topic. Um, I've been wanting to drill into this for a very long time, and that is really responsible investing. So picking up things like ethical, sustainable and investing for positive impact. So the landscape for investing responsibly and for positive impact is rapidly changing. Pressure is building from all stakeholders, including government, shareholders, industry funds and investors generally. The good news is that where there was once limited investment options available, access to quality investments in this space is now ever-growing. Having said that, it's also equally important to have an honest discussion today about some of the barriers, pitfalls and importantly misinformation that can surround this space. Climate change is of course one of the big ones and a key area of concern and whilst some may take the view that government will lead the change in ensuring measures to achieve net zero emissions by 2050 to be implemented in line with the Paris Agreement, um, it's likely that this will not be enough. So today I'm joined by a panel of experts who can shine a light on how the impetus for change is increasingly coming from shareholders, investors and large corporates. So we've got a lot to unpack here. Um, So I'm going to be breaking this topic up into two parts. So today is part one and I want to explore the history, importantly break down some of the jargon and terminology which can be a bit of a minefield and and highlight things to look out for if this is something that you're interested in learning more about or if you're wanting to invest through this lens. In part two, I'm going to be interviewing a former colleague of mine, Giles Gunasakura, who is the founder and CEO of the Global Impact Initiative, which he launched back in 2015 with an ambition to mainstream impact investing at scale. So traditionally, ethical and sustainable investing was often pursued as more the right thing to do, but not necessarily a good way to make good returns on your money. This is now being challenged like never before and we're increasingly witnessing the emergence of positive impact investing. I'm joined in the studio today by Tim McCallum, Regional Manager for Perpetual. Welcome, Tim. Hello, Julia. Thanks for having me. And Lachlan, welcome. And Lachlan Hay-Hendry, Regional Distribution from Pengana. Welcome, Lachlan. Thanks, Julia. On the line, we also have two specialist fund managers, Nathan Hughes and Adam Myers. And what I might do today is actually hand over um, to Tim and Nathan to introduce their colleagues. Um, So, Tim, I might um, throw to you first if you'd like to introduce Nathan Hughes, please. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Julia. So, great pleasure to introduce Perpetual Portfolio Manager Nathan Hughes, who managed the Ethical SRI Fund. 
the fund's got over 950 million invested and has been running since April 2002. Uh, some background on Nathan completed a, a commerce degree at the University of Wollongong. Uh, initially worked as a chartered accountant for six years uh, before seeing the light coming to Perpetual in September 2010 as a research research analyst. Uh, Nathan moved into the equities dealer role for a couple of years on the desk at Perpetual and then was appointed to the role of uh, equities analyst covering the small cap stocks in 2013 and then promoted to deputy portfolio manager in May 2016 where he took on 50% of our smaller companies fund. Uh, he was appointed as pe- portfolio manager for the ethical SRI fund in April 2019 uh, he's also holds the Chartered Financial Analyst designation. So, hello, Nathan, and uh, thanks for your time today. Hi, Tim. Uh, thanks for your introduction, and Julia, thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure and welcome. And Lachlan, would you like to introduce Adam? Yeah. So, thanks, Julia. Um, so, Adam is an executive director of Pangana Capital Group. He leads the distribution team, which I'm a part of and also has oversight of strategic initiatives and responsibility for the investment capability within our group. Um, Really due to Adam's passion for responsible investing, he recognised quite early on that one of the reasons a lot of investors weren't investing responsibly was due to a perception that this would lead to inferior investment outcomes, which was really driven by a lack of high quality options available to Australian investors, particularly in the international space. So that That really led Adam to conduct a global search to identify the leaders in ESG, ethical, impact investing. And today we're really proud of our capability um, that we've developed and the options options we've made available to investors. Uh, Prior to joining Pangana, Adam worked at Investec uh, Bank in South Africa. So you may detect a slight accent from him. So uh, welcome, Adam. Thank you. Pleasure to be here today. Thanks for joining us, Adam. Now, one of the hurdles to overcome when thinking about this space for me is really that minefield of jargon. And we've uh, we've all agreed today we're going to try and strip it back as much as we can. But the reality is that there is a few key terms that are important to understand. So I'd like to start there. Um, so, Tim, would you mind, I guess, explaining what does ethical investing actually mean? Yeah, it is an interesting area and and many different words used in this space, Julia. So ethical investing is the practice of selecting investments based on ethical or moral principles, uh, sometimes referred to as socially responsible investing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Generally in the the process, there are ethical screens that are run across the various listed companies so that revenue derived by those companies uh, is defined as unethical in certain areas and they will be identified. So these screens are looking like your standard things like your alcohol, gambling, tobacco, then go into uranium and and nuclear. Uh, It looks at armaments, including weapons, uh, fossil fuels and the upstream processing, uh, genetic engineering or GMO as it's commonly known. Uh, And of course, areas like pornography and animal cruelty, especially in that animal cruelty for cosmetic testing. We understand that for the the betterment of, of humans, there is medical testing. Uh, generally, when we look at these from an ethical point of view, there's a, a 5% allowance or there a small allowance. In our case, it's 5%. So that no more than 5% of revenue can be derived from any of those nine ethical areas mm-hmm. um, and from and generally they've then filtered out. So it is a yes or no. If, if revenue comes more than 5% from those, 
what viewed as unethical, it's gets out. screened out. Yep. Mm-hmm. Now, I have a bit of a confession to make, Tim. Um, the term ESG gets bandied about and up until recently, um, I thought it stood for ethical, sustainable and governance, um, when actual fact I believe it is environmental, social and governance. Can you explain what the difference is and why it's important to make this differentiation? I was of of the same view, you know, that the E people think straight away is that ethical, but yeah, it is environmental. So, you know, if we if we refer back to those ethical filters, it's yes, no. If if listed companies then get through those filters, we then run uh, the ESG scoring system across those environmental, social, and governance. Uh, and this system can be negative in certain areas but there also can be some positives in that. So there's a plus mm-hmm. or minus in different areas. So the environmental looks at companies' policies and targets, uh, assesses obviously the environmental results, uh, any chemicals of any concerns, but also looks at areas such as renewable energy use and, and enviro-positive products and services. So again, you know those last couple there would be viewed as a positive uh, in that area. From the social, as its name suggests, looks at, at areas of human rights, um, you know, use of human capital, especially in some of the, you know, I suppose some of the resources companies that are here in WA we are, that are mining in, mm-hmm. in some of the third world areas and, and through Africa and those sort of places. Uh, how is the supply train, uh, chain treated in those areas? And also looking at animal rights and uh, the community. And I suppose we relate that also to the native title and how some of those relationships work. And then finally, the governance provides that compliance overlay uh, with the assessment of uh, conduct or ethical approach. And mm-hmm. we've seen through royal commissions and those sort of areas that companies are filtered out due to uh, due to areas around corporate misconduct. Uh, there's fines or sanctions that they may have received, issues around bribery or fraud or evidence of uh, of that corporate misconduct. So, so if a company gets through the first steps of the ethical process and then has a positive ESG score, uh, then they come into the investable universe. Yeah, thanks, Tim. And I guess what the listeners are no doubt already picking up is that there's quite a lot in this, so it is important to take this time to make those differentiations. Lachlan, um, how does ESG differ to sustainable investing? And can you give us a brief, brief overview of how it's really evolved? Yeah, so today we really think of responsible investment as a bit of a spectrum and mm. ESG, ethical, sustainable, impact investing all really fit within that uh, that spectrum. But it hasn't always been that way and we've seen, seen things evolve quite considerably over the last 30 years or so. If you think back to the 80s, we really just had two types of investing. There was traditional investing for profit and philanthropic investments, which would typically typically invest in the same types of assets. It's just that the proceeds were directed to a different purpose. Mm -hmm. In the 90s, we started to see certain investors, initially faith-based organisations, you know, request that their investment advisor exclude companies or industries that were considered destructive, harmful or offensive, and perhaps in in some cases tempting for their congregants. So that was really the genesis for negative screening, which is really linked to ethical uh, investing, which Tim's um, just explained. So those terms, ethical investing and negative screening really go uh, go together. Mm-hmm. So over time, those exclusions are extended and you know now we see about 20% of the global listed market uh, tend to be excluded um, for a fund that's investing ethically. The next phase of the evolution really involve uh, assessing the information that companies generated to show the impact of their operations, and that's the ESG analysis. And now we have dozens of companies that will assess this information, score or benchmark them, 
and some fund managers, as Tim's explained, they, they use these outputs as part of their investment process. So just to clarify, negative screens is really uh, involves what a company does, whereas ESG is mainly about how a company conducts its business. And more recently, we've started to see investors who are looking to promote sustainability and, and invest to make a positive impact. Mm -hmm. Some investors may still be willing to sacrifice return for impact, but at Pingana, we're more concerned with targeting market-related returns as well as generating a positive impact. So impact investing, the last one, is there, would you want to expand on that a little bit more? Yeah. About so why it matters? Yeah, so look, I, I'm pretty passionate about uh, impact investing and um, that's probably gone to another level over mm -hmm. the last few years since becoming a parent. And, you know, until recently, I probably felt like there was nothing I could do to, to make any meaningful impact. You mm -hmm. know, I've got to keep cup, I compost, but, you know, there's so much more that needs to be done. And which here's is, one way you can do it. Yeah, mm. which is, you know, it's it's so important that we have fund managers that are directing capital to those companies that are providing solutions to, you know, the, the myriad uh, sustainability challenges that we face. And really intentionality is really critical in this space because you can't invest for impact by accident. You really have to state what impact you're trying to achieve. To be accountable to your investors, you need to be able to measure and then report on mm -hmm. the impact you're actually making. So one of Pangana's strategies is a sustainable impact strategy and the team's mission statement is to advance sustainability and create prosperity through positive impact investments. Now, we continually measure the impact of the strategy and then report to investors every year so that they can see the impact that their personal investment has made, whether that be avoiding CO2 emissions, reducing water use, healthcare treatment or providing education. So there's a lot that can be achieved through investment. I like that idea. So what you're saying is that where you are investing money there, you can actually um, demonstrate what impact that has. Absolutely. In different areas. That's actually great. I love that. Um, so there's now an irrefutable link between human activity, global warming and extreme climate events, with the recent global report indicating that some of the damage may not be reversed within centuries or sadly millennia, within millennia, even if the climate is stabilised soon. Um, Adam, is it all bad news? Can finance have a positive impact in addressing the critical challenges facing the world today? Um, it absolutely can, but it also depends. Um, this is actually quite topical at the moment because a gentleman called Terrence Fancy, who was previously the head of sustainable investment at BlackRock, um, wrote a very broadly published essay recently, which um, basically ended with him saying that their work in sustainable investing was like selling wheatgrass to cancer patients. And as you can imagine, this has caused a, a major stir in the, in the industry. BlackRock is the, um, is, is the largest asset manager in the world. But impact investing is different. And I know that um, you know things broadly get caught up in, in common jargon and common terminology. Um, but an impact, if it's well, it incorporates all of the other aspects or the majority of the other aspects of responsible investing. But it is explicitly about creating real and measurable positive change in the world. Um, so, so Lachlan refers to the fact that we have a sustainable impact fund where we only invest in companies which produce goods and services to address the challenges of sustainability and to support the transition to a zero carbon, more sustainable world. So when you talk about critical challenges, I think that these are the sort of challenges that do qualify. 
and by supporting the businesses that address them and helping them to grow and reducing their cost of capital, we think that we are effectively enabling them to continue to to have this positive impact. So, so, so as I say, you, you know, it's, it's not a simple answer, but I, but I do believe that it can have a positive impact. Thanks, Adam. And I have to say that's reassuring to hear. And I want to dig a little bit deeper later on and circle back to some examples of companies you invest in and and how that, I guess, some some proof points that we'd like to share with the listeners. But before we go there, Nathan, um, as a financial advisor, it's often historically felt like ethical investing was essentially more a process of elimination. And we touched on the jargon negative screening earlier rather than inclusion. So building a portfolio that avoids investing in things like alcohol, tobacco, gaming, um, is that still the case? Well, Julia, uh, we we heard from uh, Lachlan and Adam uh, and and Tim, whether you call it ethical, sustainable, responsible, impact investing, um, there's many different ways you you can approach this. Look, negative screening is still a common element of many strategies today, but it's really only one type um, across what I would call a continuum. Um, at the most basic level, there's, there's ESG integration, uh, which is incorporating the ESG performance into the investment decision-making. And to be honest, I view this as, as simply essential. And if you're not doing this in the first instance, you're not really doing the job. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gives us a, a way to consider the quality and, and culture um, and competitive strengths, weaknesses, threats of an organisation. So that's really critical to investment um, outcomes. But beyond this, there, there are various ways managers might choose to do it, um, whether it's a negative screen, positive screen. Some funds might target best-in-class. We've heard already some funds might have more explicit um, targets for positive impact or, or links to the sustainable development goals. I don't think there's necessarily... Uh, a right or wrong or a perfect approach. But I do think it's really important. It's ultimately up to the end investor to align himself with what really appeals to them and, and their values. Uh, particularly when considering negative screening, um, some investors may feel strongly about certain issues and, and less strongly about others. So, <coughs> excuse me, it's really important for some managers that offer these products to be transparent about how their product is, is put together. Mm-hmm. Uh, to report regularly on, on holdings and what's in the fund and document how they're executing according to the state of process. And it, it's also really critical for advisors to have the discussion um, with the investors and educate them Absolutely. Um, on, on the types of funds that are available to them and they're, they're getting into. Um, I mean, in this space, we're seeing uh, a lot of information, a lot of jargon and a lot of marketing in front of the investors. So I think that transparency from the fund manager is really very important. And as you say, coming back to what's the investor's preferences, but once they understand the differences, as you say, it could be that they choose to deploy one or multiple forms of them within their portfolio, depending on what's appropriate and what's available to them. But um, circling back to that ESG in particular, um, do any companies you invest in stand out when you view them through that particular lens? Yeah, absolutely. So we own shares um, in a real estate investment group in our fund called Dexas. Uh, so Dexas is both a landlord and property manager, but predominantly a, a landlord, um, mostly in office markets, but with a growing portfolio in industrial property and also some recent investment in, into healthcare. Um, like many players, they have a big focus on improving the energy intensity, water intensity of their 
properties. Now, I obviously think that's a, a tremendous thing, but it, it has real value to the business because mm-hmm. it's valuable for tenants who are trying to improve their own footprint. <coughs> Excuse me, tenants who are trying to uh, better their own credentials. I mean, that becomes really attractive. And, and we think that it's appointed to the quality of the business and the quality of the portfolio. Uh, and higher quality assets are undoubtedly better placed with withstand periods of, of weakness or market stress. Um, but beyond this, so Dexas does really well in, in areas like diversity, uh, inclusion, staff engagement, and, and on things like gender pay gap. I mean, there is no gender pay gap. And to some, and, and myself in 2021, these are things that should just be business as usual. Yeah. Uh, but some groups undoubtedly do it, do it better than others. And there's real benefits to this sort of stuff. Like the, the benefit of having a safe, um, engaged, motivated workforce. Uh, at first, it might seem abstract, but there are real financial benefits, and that's a way in which you know good ESG performance can contribute to the the performance of a company. Um, so look, there's a few factors there which give us reasons to believe it's an above average quality business. But then the next step to consider, though, is is even allowing for all that um, is it still a good investment, and, and that's when you have to try and link the ESG performance, the performance of the overall business, to investment outcomes. Yeah, and I love that example. You're talking my language, absolutely. And I'm a huge believer in terms of diversity being good for business. And in fact, um, when people say to me, why is diversity important? I, you know, obviously the social side and the human side is, is critical and central to it. But at the end of the day, diversity equals profit when you get to the heart of it. And I think that's the, the point that can be easily missed. So I, I love that example in particular that you gave. Well, I think, Julie, just if I can jump in and... Lachlan mentioned about the the start of it, or some of this was the faith and the the religious. Now we've in our not for profit side of perpetual, uh, there is a, a couple of different views. There's one religious order uh, that want to focus on exactly the type of investing we have. Mm-hmm. There's another group that said just give us the returns and we will make the difference ourselves. Mm. So again, it's that important thing that the end investor is very clear about what they're what they're in, attempting to achieve. And so important to have those discussions and to extract that and to find out where it sits. Changing tack a little bit, um, Adam, perhaps this one for you. A common way for investors to compare returns is against a benchmark, for example, the S&P 500 Global Index. In the case of responsible and impact investing, I would have thought that the portfolios are unlikely to reflect the index. So given that, how should returns be compared and how do these investments tend to perform today? So that's, that's, that's an excellent point. You will generally have very differentiated portfolios, um, which mean that over the short term, it does make it difficult to you know, compare short-term performance to the benchmark. Um, we still believe that a, a widely used benchmark like an MSCI world or, or something like that does make sense. Um, over the longer term because the whole idea is that this is um, it, it, this, this has to be a, a viable way of investing. It has to generate at least equivalent returns. And there has been a huge amount of academic research on this subject. Um, it's very difficult to generalize because there are so many different approaches to responsible investing. Um, but... The, the research largely supports expectations of long-term outperformance um, and in broad-based 
strategies. There's no evidence um, that anybody should expect long-term underperformance if they're investing with sort of with a responsible lens. Um, the naysayers will probably point to industries like defence, which have generally done pretty well over the long term, as validation that investing in the so-called stocks pays. Um, but they won't talk about the disastrous returns of, of investing, for example, in coal over the long term. Um, so if you filter a universe by basic ESG factors, you often filter out the lower quality names. And who doesn't want to own high-quality companies? As Nathan said, um, high-quality companies are, are more resilient. Um, so a- absolutely, the, 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 the long-term um, concern that if you were investing, if you were aligning your investments with your with your personal ethics or your moral compass, you would end up with inferior returns. Has been has been completely debunked. Exactly, and is it a case in some respects to perhaps just perhaps be a little bit more patient and take that longer term view? As my gut feeling is, I suspect the outperformance for companies that are really innovating in these spaces might take a little bit longer to play out, or is that not the case? Look, there's times when you are going to, I'm not going to say necessarily that they take longer to play out. I'm going to say that it is differentiated. And there are times when, um, you know, the, the, the less sustainable industries will be performing better. And there's times when mm-hmm. the, the more sustainable industries will be performing better. REA, which is the um, REA firm for the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia, and they monitor the performance numbers of responsible funds, which are the, the suite of responsible funds which are locally available. Um, and particularly in the global space, on average, they've strongly outperformed the, the market over the last one, three, and five years. So it's not necessarily the case that you have to wait for longer. There will be there will be times when, um, you know, you know when when different factors drive performance. And that makes sense. And I was reading in a Pengana article that um, thinking about impact investing, you think of it as a new way of thinking about finance, putting positive impact at its heart. Do any companies stand out for you in the impact investing space? Um, absolutely. I think I think we were actually quoting Sir Ronald Cohen, who wrote a fantastic book. Ah, okay, thank you for clearing interested. that up. <laughs> I, I would suggest that um, you give that book a read. Um, I will do. And if you go onto if if you go onto our impact Microsoft, which is impact.bengana.com, you'll see um, our portfolio. We, we disclose our portfolio. Somebody referenced the importance of transparency. I wholeheartedly agree. It's critical. So our portfolio is disclosed there, um, and there are really impactful names. Um, if I were to give a simple, a single example. Um, I guess I'd point to a company called Dutch, well, DSM, um, because in, in the context of where it comes from, it's an interesting example to talk about. DSM is Dutch State Mines, is, is what it stands for. Um, and when it was founded in 1902, it was a coal mining business. Um, today, it, it, it doesn't have any mining assets anymore. It's a science company um, which manufactures nutritional and pharmaceutical ingredients as well as specialized chemicals and materials. 
Um, we hold it now environmental services theme. Um, and it has, it has a range of very interesting products. One is a cattle feed additive that reduces the amount of methane that cattle produce from their normal metabolic activity. Um, that was nicely put. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on a podcast, I have to be polite. Um, so, 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 so absolutely. So, so, and we know that if the food industry is allowed to develop on its current course, um, it will basically consume our entire carbon budget um, wow. So just digressing slightly, the carbon budget is really the amount of carbon that we can burn um, in order to prevent the, the global warming from increasing by more than one and a half degrees um, from pre-industrial levels, which is in line with the, 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 the Paris Agreement that you referred to earlier. Um, so, so that, that's a, it's a very impactful product. Um, another product that they produce is an advanced material called Dyneema, which is super light, light enough to float on water. It's very strong. It's strong enough to um, hold ships into port and hold up bridges. Um, and it's fully recyclable. So there's like this, this closed recyclable loop that the, um, you, you know, that, that people are referring to recycling as one of the key elements of yeah. for long-term sustainability. So, so I think DSM is a phenomenal company. Yeah, I love that example. And coming from a, a coal background, who would have thought originally? It's brilliant to hear. Yeah. Um, Nathan, I'm going to change tack again a little bit. I'd like to get your views on targets. So there are businesses that are, ena are enabling a transition to a zero carbon, and we commonly hear that net zero global greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 is the key target. Is that too far away, and is it enough? Look, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, I, I think some of the evidence that we've we've seen recently, including some of the um, reporting out of the IPCC, suggests that it, it might be too far away. Um, look, in terms of the listed market, uh, which I can talk to, we're seeing many companies set targets, um, including a lot just in the reporting season just gone, actually. And look, I think the targets are a great first step. Uh, however, they have to be seen as such, it's a step along a journey and they need to have substance. Um, so, I mean, when companies are talking about net zero by 2050, they're talking about a target uh, 30 years hence almost and, and likely to be delivered on by maybe, you know, a fifth subsequent generation of, of management. Um, so, look, what I think we're really interested in as investors is um, what progress is being made today. So yes. which, which yeah. companies have shorter term targets? So for example, Dexas has a target by 2030 um, and, and shorter targets for the assets that it manages. Um, many other businesses have interim targets and they're of great interest to us because they point to the substance and that, that actions are being taken today. I mean, I acknowledge for some industries, um, it's really hard to decarbonize um, and, and there is some uncertainty around what technologies might be available to them and, and what timeline they can work to. Um, but we're really looking for, for credibility. So how ambitious are the targets? What are the interim targets? What near-term actions are being taken? So we're looking at, like, our targets being linked to executive remuneration, our targets being linked to the capital expenditure of a business, um, and, and how 
companies are really setting in motion today uh, that journey, which is going to be a challenge over a long period of time. And I was listening to Elizabeth Gaines speak at a breakfast recently and was curious to hear that FMG are now uh, aiming for 2030 as well, like Dexas, and pushing very strongly into um, hydrogen export as an example. But her observation was that when it was 2050, it was on their radar and they were moving into um, autonomous vehicles, that kind of thing. But as soon as it became 2030... It was a whole different ball game, and there were actions that needed to be taken today. Are there any companies that you've identified um, who are really on that journey to improve themselves quickly? Any Australian examples that stand out in this space, Nathan? Look, um, one example I wouldn't say improve themselves quickly, but I think would act and, and have acted um, with long run sustainability very much at front of mind, um, recognising that sustainability is critical to helping drive those long-term shareholder returns. And, and so a company I'd point to is actually West Farmers. Um, and so the, I guess to understand how a company is going about it, you can really only look at the actions they're taking. So putting aside the, the glossy reporting and, and looking through the data carefully, um, you have to look at the actions uh, of the business. And I think West Farmers is a really interesting case study because if you look at how they've reshaped their portfolio over recent years, they've clearly uh, made big shifts. So they've divested thermal coal assets, uh, they've divested their minority interest in the quadrant oil and gas um, business, and they've invested in a lithium asset, which is obviously a very interesting asset from the point of electrification and decarbonisation. So they've really reshaped their portfolio in a big way. Uh, beyond emissions, though, um, you know, West Farmers has got a lot of sustainability issues to consider. So obviously, they have an enormous workforce, mm. and they've got to think about the diversity and safety of their people. Uh, packaging waste is is a really interesting one, and they've done great things in both making the uh, packaging they have more recyclable, um, and and obviously trying to minimise the wastage in their in their system. Really focusing on the circular economy. Uh, obviously, the renewable energy uptake. Um, has been enormous at a lot of their big box sites. And it's great to put solar panels on the roof um, and it's making a real difference. So, um, look, they're not perfect. There are some challenges for West Farmers. So in their chemicals business, whilst their emissions intensity has improved greatly, there's still some way to go. But I think it's a really good example of a company where uh, sustainability and accountability for that goes right to the top. Uh, CEO is very much involved and accountable. Um, and it's a company that I think is, is making good strides towards a sustainable future. Yeah, and Rob Scott's a really impressive character and um, just a little um, interesting um, segue here. I uh, know Rob from his teenage days when he was a rower at our rowing club, actually, so it's been fascinating <laughs> to watch his journey and, and see that develop as well. Um, do you think Australians expect their savings in super to be responsibly invested? Look, I do. I, I do. I guess we have to be a little careful um, just around the, the term, I guess. I mean, we're talking about responsible investing and, and all the different ways you can do that. But look, fundamentally, people entrust us with their with their savings. And, and so they expect uh, us to invest you know, with care and appropriate diligence. Um, and, and that would, in, in my opinion, of course, include thinking about some of these issues and, and how that might impact uh, investment outcomes. Um, for them, you know, we are stewards of other people's capital. So, we, you know, we have a responsibility to be active owners. We, we have a responsibility to engage with companies on 
on these material issues to our investors, so things like uh, climate change and the resilience of the business to, to a changing climate. Um, we have to exercise our voting rights um, thoughtfully and carefully. And, and I mean, one of the benefits of working for Petrol um, and not getting a plug is, is we can amass large holdings in, in companies and we do get the ability to engage with senior management and, and boards on, on matters such as this. So, look, I, I do believe um, Aussies expect their super to be responsibly invested, but uh, look, I think that's just par for the course, to be honest. Yeah, we've, we've, and we're, we're on that journey when maybe a little bit um, further to go on it. Um, thinking about, you were just mentioning shareholders then, so how important are things like shareholder activism, corporates, industry funds and the role of government in playing their part here? Yeah, so, so I think all can, all can play a role and, and certainly in the instance of net zero, it's very clear that corporates have taken the lead. Um, over the last 12, 18 months, and, and perhaps a little bit longer for some companies, whilst the government has, has kind of been dithering, um, many corporates have have just taken the lead anyway. Uh, mm. I, I do think, though, and, and there's obviously some press today uh, and in recent days around perhaps some changing views from the government. I think for a, a, a problem as complex as climate change, I do think the government needs to play a big role. I, I think they need to get involved. And... Why do I say that? I think we've certainly seen listed corporates um, take the lead, but they are only a subset of the economy. Um, there are a lot of companies which aren't under the same public scrutiny. You know, they don't have industry funds pushing them. Um, and it, it's a really interesting one. We could probably talk for hours about the topic yeah. of, mm. of divestment. So where mm. farmers have improved their portfolio, obviously, from their perspective, mm. but the emissions are still there. That's right. Um, and, and that's another topic altogether. So I think what I'm trying to say is I think it needs to be a holistic solution. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that in mind, I think the government has to play a key role. And uh, I'd say pleasingly, there's some perhaps more encouraging science just in recent days and weeks. Yeah, I think Morrison's in Washington at the moment and it seems to be inching towards the 2050 and uh, simultaneously we have Frydenberg warning people about the potential impact of interest rates off the back of that as we rely on foreign investment and, and so on into our country. But at least we're having the conversation. So I think that that's, yeah. um, that's a positive. Um, I said right at the beginning that there's, um, I guess, a few issues that we potentially need to be aware of um, or or potholes, if I can call them that, in this space. And Tim, I wouldn't mind your views on this um, because this can be a little bit tricky. We're seeing some managed funds being repurposed or relabeled to indicate they're investing in, you know, ethical, sustainable, and/or for impact investing, etc. I believe the term is greenwashing. What things should people be looking out for to differentiate those that are really ticking the box versus genuinely leaning into the space? Uh, yes, Julia, greenwashing or sometimes being referred to as ESG washing are a couple of newer terms in the financial landscape and something that investors in this area need to be mindful. Um, you know, there was a, a webinar I, I attended um, where a, a, an ETF uh, strategy was was referenced. Uh, the ETF was benchmarked against the ASX 200 uh, and they promoted the fact that they had some ethical and ESG overlay um, in fact, they screened out uh, the manufacturing of tobacco and armaments. Now, of course, this effectively screened out 
zero companies in the yeah. ASX 200. <laughs> so did nothing. Exactly right. So, mm. you know, that's just one one case that mm. is sort of, uh, you know, drifting through the through industry at the moment. But there's a couple of important things and, and Adam referenced one at the moment. So, you know, factors to identify that your, your fund manager or your, your investment strategy is a member of the Responsible Investing Association of Australasia. So the RIAA. So they champion responsible investing and sustainable financial systems in Australia and New Zealand uh, and are dedicated to ensuring capital is aligned with achieving a healthy society, environment and economy. Uh, the second is that the signatory to be or it to be a signatory to the United Nations principles for responsible investing, where there's six principles um, offer a menu of possible actions for incorporating ESG issues into the investment practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the other area, of course, across funds is that uh, the fund managers or most of the strategies have independent research. Yes, And you've true. got groups like, you know, Zenith, Lonsec, Morningstar, and, and they are also providing uh, their views on sustainability and ESG and coming out with ratings, you know, for, for one of them they have a... A, a B strategy, so up to five Bs can be awarded to a to a specific fund. So there's some of the areas that, that that we need to be mindful of to make sure that what you're investing is is very much true to label. Thanks, Tim, and some good tips in there for what to look out for as well. Um, up until now, we've been quite focused on Australia. Um, Adam, turning our minds to investing offshore, how important is it to consider international investments as part of the overall mix if this is a key priority or preference for the investor? Um, so I think ordinary investment principles apply in a responsible context as well. So, you know, that's really about asset allocation and portfolio diversification. Um, Australian listed equities represent about 2% of, of the global total. So diversification seems sensible. I'm sure you would recommend, mm-hmm. you know, or, or caution your clients against putting all their eggs into the same basket. Um what I can say with conviction is that there are more opportunities when investing offshore. You've got different markets, um, different industries, different ecosystems, um, and the opportunity set offshore is much greater for investors who are looking to invest with impact. So I would recommend it. So that makes sense. Um, and thinking about, I guess, um the fact that we don't have a planet B, um, and whilst the newsreel can feel pretty sobering at times, can you share with us some real-world examples of solutions you're starting to see that people might not be aware of? Um, yes, so look, at, at the moment, climate change is such a pressing issue, and there are lots of companies that are, are making a real impact in the space. Um, for example, we invest in a company called TPR Composites, which um, makes the blades for wind turbines. We all know that electricity generated by wind is a, is a cleaner form of, of electricity. Um, but they make their blades out of a composite material, which um, is very light and very strong. And what this means is because the, 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 it's so light and so strong, firstly, they last longer, which means that there is less impact associated with the commissioning and decommissioning of these blades. Um, but also you can make them a lot longer, which means that they can produce more energy in a low wind environment. So it is a very, very impactful company. But then what they are doing is they are taking the same technology that they developed 
for these wind turbine blades, which are now as, as tall as the Statue of Liberty. Um, and wow. they are, um, <laughs> they, 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 they're sort of migrating this technology to other areas. So TPI Composites also has a, a transportation segment, which is small and only counts for about 10% of their, their revenue. But they're using their expertise in light weighting, in, you know, light weighting very strong materials, um, to create chassis for, for trucks and, um, and buses and things. And so light weighting is obviously very important, um, for emission reduction in an internal combustion engine context. Um, but it's even more important in a the, the rapidly growing electric vehicle market where you've obviously got the weight of batteries and things that you need to, to consider. So that's um, sort of one example. We invest in a company called Arcadis, which is a, a design and engineering consultancy. Um, and they are mainly focused on climate adaptation, climate readiness, um, sort of building, uh, making sure that buildings are ready for um, the, the more extreme weather that we can probably expect to experience. Mm. So those are a couple of examples. I mean, there are so many examples in industry as well. Um, autom automation, advanced materials handling, AI, um, the companies that are, are making great strides there, we, we invest in um, Kion Group, we invest in Daifuku, we, we invest in a, in a few companies like that. Um, what they do is they firstly um, save energy costs, but they also um, introduce resilience into the operation, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, as, as we really learned about over the last year, that is, that is critical. Um, so th th there are an abundance of companies, but I, but I also actually think that it's important to say that there are lots of sustainable businesses that aren't purely in um, the environmental type of sustainability industry that aren't only focused on reducing carbon and addressing climate change. So we invest, for example, in a business called Cooper, which is um, a leading contact lens manufacturer as well as a medical device manufacturer in, in women's health. Um, and they have a product which is available actually already in Australia called MySight, which is effectively contact lenses which reduce the progression of myopia. And I mean, if, if it's taken, if they are, are given to children, now, that is incredible when we consider that current projections are that by 2050, um, half the world's population will have problems with their sight and about, um, you know, 10% um, could be considered based on, on, on today's definitions technically blind. So anything that can be done to, to reduce that, um, you know, is it, hugely impactful. So I don't want to give the impression um, that impact investing or sustainable investing relates purely to, um, to, to environmental concerns. If we think about the definition of sustainability, um, it, it relates to enabling consumption today without doing anything to prejudice future generations' ability cons to consume. So 
um, you know, people are really at the heart and we should consider them in our, you know, in our investments as well. Yeah, and they are brilliant examples. And I love the fact that you ex- you explained I guess the the breadth of it as well. Um, I the myopia is an interesting one. I wonder if it's all the device usage, with the, you know our faces and our phones all the time is probably not helping either. Um, Lachlan, um, when we caught up, we talked about rules based investing when we caught up recently, or index an index tracking a, a approach in this space. Is that enough? And what what does it actually mean? Well, it's a good question, Julia, and a really important one. I, I think just with main, just like with mainstream investing, there's both active options whereby you know, a team of people are making the investment decisions and passive options, which involves establishing a set of rules uh, and then allowing you know, a, a computer to, to make the, uh, the investment decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the challenge for investors, though, is that responsible investing can be quite nuanced as you know, I think has has come through in the discussion today, and a simple set of rules can often fall short of providing investors with, you know, really what they're looking for. And Tim gave that example earlier, yeah. which is a good one. And, and you know, another example that that sort of demonstrates that is there's you know these sustainable indices that passive funds tend to track, but if you look under the hood at some of the top holdings, you will typically find a bunch of technology names: Facebook, Google, Microsoft. You know, now we would question whether any of those businesses are actually involved in anything sustainable, mm-hmm. um, and you know this really comes back to the issue of greenwashing, which which Tim talked about. Um, where, you know, so we think investors really have to look beyond the headline name of the fund and and look look at the holdings and think about uh, whether that group of companies is is true to label. Um, so recently, BlackRock, uh, which Adam mentioned, uh, the largest uh, asset manager in the world, they they launched a fund called their Carbon Transition Readiness Fund. Mm-hmm. Now, when I hear that name, I, I would expect the funds investing in a bunch of renewable technology or carbon capture type businesses. But no, if you look at the top holdings, you'll see the same names that sit in the mainstream global index, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, Facebook. You know, they're all great businesses. It does have Telstra though, so I guess they get a... Uh, <laughs> sorry, Tesla, sorry. Tesla. Okay. Tesla. Uh, so they get a tick for that one. Um but in our view, active management is really critical in this space, particularly in impact investing, because it's just too hard to set rules and then actually come up with a, with a portfolio that's achieving that, that aim. And another great example where it is important to scratch beneath the surface to see what's really under the bonnet. A- absolutely. Um, and that's where some of the tips you gave earlier, Tim, about is it RIA? Um, that people can RIA, RIA yeah. um, and obviously as advisors we have access to research and things like that. So yeah. there's perhaps a little bit more to it. Most of the strategies, the, the good managers will will provide you know look through. It might not be the portfolio as uh, as Nathan and Adam are investing today, but you know it might be a, a couple of months old. So you get a good look through into what is behind the scenes. Transparency, so, yeah, is key. exactly, yep. absolutely, like yeah. Yeah, brilliant. So just conscious of time and before we wrap up, um, over the weekend I was reflecting on this as I was chatting to our teenage kids and their friends about this topic and one of them commented that they've been learning about irreversible damage to the planet, which in her view was pretty damn depressing. Um, so I, I, I feel like this is perhaps the most important question for the millennials listening um, and perhaps parents and everybody in fact. Um, perhaps Nathan first, I wouldn't mind comments from both yourself, Nathan and Adam, do you believe we can get to where we need to get to in order to secure a better future for future generations? Yes, I do. I mean, Julie, I'm, I'm an optimist. 
um, good at, at heart, and, and I think, um, and I never, I never want to underestimate uh, human ingenuity. No, I think uh, even the response we saw to COVID, the way people mobilised, were able to um, make a vaccine in, in such short time was was quite remarkable. But I, I think there's some really exciting um, technologies, and, and Adam's given some really good examples, actually. Mm. Um, of that, and, and I think there's a growing awareness of the challenges um, that are presented to us, and, and with that, an understanding that action needs to be taken. Um, so I'm seeing positive steps in that direction, but I also think there's some really exciting technology, some more in the infancy than others, that um, can help us along the journey. So, yeah, absolutely, I'm, I'm optimistic. Fantastic. That's reassuring. And, Adam, your thoughts? Um equally optimistic. I think that we've been aware of the issues for some time, but somehow over the last few years, our collective um, approach, our collective psyche has changed in some way. And and, um, we are no longer ignoring the issues. We are now um, thinking, well, what can we do? How do we, um, you know, how do we sort of act to, to, to um, bring about real change. And I agree, technology is going to do most of the heavy lifting and we are making a lot of progress. Um, there are still um, sort, of, sort of some technological barriers at the moment. There are um, still um, issues that we do not have a technological roadmap to address. But um, really, our constraints, our, our technological constraints are, are quite far down the track if we look at it from a broad economic perspective. Um, and I am sure that by the time we get to those points, technology will have significantly advanced. So, yes, I am optimistic. Um, and what I also think is, is uh, clearly reflected is that, that um, people's investment preferences, people's behaviours, um, they're all changing. We collectively are wanting to, you know, you know to, to act and conduct ourselves in a more sustainable way. That makes sense. And I have to say, it's actually really reassuring to hear. Um, And, you know, to hear about some of the more tangible stories and proof points today, we are turning the corner. And perhaps a silver lining to COVID is that I feel like we're seeing an acceleration in this trend, such that it's now really an imperative for corporates to tackle this if they do want to remain relevant. Um, A heartfelt thank you to both you, Adam and Nathan, for sharing your valuable time and expertise today. And thank you, Tim and Lachlan, for your contribution and for helping coordinate to bring today's podcast come to life. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Julia. For those of you listening... Thanks um, very much. That's my pleasure. For those of you listening, I hope today's podcast has been helpful. Um, If you don't mind leaving reviews, that's always really, really helpful and, and spread the word with family and friends if you think this might be of interest to them. As I said at the beginning, um, there's an awful lot to unpack in this one. So this is part one. Join me in a couple of weeks for part two, where I will be talking to the CEO of the only Australian company and one of only 36 companies acknowledged globally by the United Nations as a UN lead company for their work in the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Stay tuned. That was another episode of Good Money Habits, brought to you by Lighthouse Capital. 
A reminder that this episode was general in nature and doesn't take into account your personal objectives, financial situation or needs, and therefore may not be appropriate for you. It is recommended that you seek professional advice before making any significant financial decisions. If you want to find out more, this podcast is available on Apple Podcasts or head to www.lighthousecapital.com.au. 